Hello, listeners. I'm Steve Torns with Below the Radar. This week, we are sharing a podcast episode from our friends at Urbanarium. It is a City Talk miniseries called Should I Stay or Should I Go? where listeners follow Jenny Tan on her mission to figure out how to keep on living in Vancouver as she explores the housing crisis from her trailer home in the West End. In this first installment called If We Need More Homes, Why Can't We Build Them? Jenny speaks with Sonia Trouse, the president of Yimby Law in California, a nonprofit that sues cities for not obeying their own housing laws. Sonia Trouse, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm pretty excited. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Sonia, what kind of home do you live in? I live in a row house. Do they call them townhomes here? For 500 years, we've been stamping out these row houses all over. <laughs> They're all kind of the same. We live in Oakland. One of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you, because I think that we as Vancouverites wear a badge of unhappy honor sometimes. You know, housing here is horrible and we're in such a housing crisis. But I think it's interesting to hear from your perspective and actually you also have it really tough. Definitely. It's like not just a local issue. It was interesting that you mentioned that people wear it as a badge of honor because in San Francisco, that's also totally true. Like there's this... I think kind of mean <laughs> underlying, you know, so for, for people who still live in San Francisco, you know, who haven't been displaced, there's a little bit of a like, well, yeah, displacement's a problem. It's like so sad when somebody is priced out and they have to move. But there's also a like, you know, they kind of blame the victim, you know, they're like, well, maybe if you were savvier, maybe if you worked harder, you know, you could have stayed like I stayed, I figured it out. That's so interesting because we totally do the same thing here too. I was amazed when I came to the Bay Area. The Bay Area is this big, you know, region, 103 cities in the Bay Area. And each city is like so tiny, whereas other big cities like would have more neighborhoods all under one local government. In the Bay Area, you have a bunch of sort of smaller cities each with their own city council, you know, each with their own local government, but still in the same metro area. And having that many governments is one of the things that really contributes to our housing problem. There's an ongoing decades-long war between cities and the state government. <laughs> the cities have some, you know, they have local control. They want to keep local control. Each, And this is what I was kind of alluding to before, where having a lot of governments is really bad for housing production. Every city wants to think that every other city is going to build all the housing. You know what I mean? So we have this like, I don't know if it's a prisoner's dilemma or what, but you know, it's just, it's a bad equilibrium for sure. I think all of us who are trying to figure out whether or not we should stay in Vancouver are trying to wrap our heads around this question of why is it so hard to build the homes we need? Because in most places, the way that we make decisions about home building is very different than the way we make other public policy decisions. For any given housing development project, we have a concentrated harms distributed benefits problem, where if you propose to build an apartment building, 
the people who live right nearby know about it. There's not that many of them, but they know about it and they feel like they're going to be very negatively impacted and they don't need housing in that neighborhood. They already have housing in that neighborhood by definition. They already live there. They live right there. But the people who will benefit from it, the 50 or 60 or 600 or 1,000 people who will live in that apartment building over the life of the apartment building, they have no way of knowing that it's going to happen, right? Like if you think about where you live now, where were you when it was being proposed, right? You may not even have been born, like maybe not even lived in Vancouver, Unlike a sales tax, you know, or a new rule about whether you can smoke in a bar, when they propose that, smokers and non-smokers, they both hear about it. They both have an opportunity to come and comment in public, write op-eds, have the argument. And so you get some outcome that's hopefully representative. But when it comes to building housing, only the people who feel they're negatively affected know about it. And so they're the ones that show up and then elected officials are never hearing from all those future residents, all those people scattered around the region who need housing. That's why I felt really motivated to organize Yimby because I realized that it was like all of us that are suffering from high housing costs need to be showing up for individual projects, not because we think we're going to live in that particular project, but because there just needs to be a constituency speaking up for those future residents. Okay, so I was born in Singapore, and my family moved here to Metro Vancouver when I was 11. We didn't know about public hearings, didn't understand they existed. So I think what you're saying is that we would have benefited from more housing in Vancouver, but we wouldn't have participated in that process. Exactly. And then when we moved here, we had no little basement suite. My parents were working their jobs that made something like six, eight dollars an hour or something, whatever it was. We didn't have time. Yes, exactly. Who people who don't live in a trailer and who own homes and are pretty comfortably housed in Vancouver, why does it matter if you're young or you can't afford to live here, if you're not savvy enough, like you said, just move east? What would you say to that? I mean, there was this headline a little while ago that was like, I don't know how to explain to you that you should be a good person. But most people do kind of care about society, but it does actually impact specific homeowners because, well, one thing that happens is that people, you know, they have kids, their kids are young, they live with them, then their kids grow older, and their kids still live with them, and then yet mm. older, and they still live with them. I would say most people who are like 50 or older who are pro-housing came to it when they had an 18 or 25-year-old who was trying to find housing, and they mm. finally saw the situation through that person's eyes, and they were like, this is horrible, you know, because parents, I mean, they want their kids to move out of their house, but they don't want their kids to move like far to another city. You know, they still want them kind of nearby. And and also, you know, they want their kids to get what they want. Right. So if the kids are having a lot of trouble finding housing or they find housing and like it's really substandard, that's how a lot of sort of comfortable homeowners can come to realize that this is a big problem. I think people get kind of, they don't really understand the stakes of what's going on. You know, mm -hmm. they like for homeowners, I mean, nostalgia is natural. Everyone feels that way. Status quo bias, natural. You know, everybody feels mm -hmm. like whatever is going on right now is probably good. And if there's a change, it's probably bad. And frankly, psychological research shows that as you get older, that gets even worse because 
you're you you know more and more what you like you know what i mean when you're younger you're like well i haven't had that many experiences so maybe something different will be good so that's all very natural and i think that most people most of the time just kind of believe everything they feel and that's actually a terrible habit and so you know you might have a neighborhood of a lot of large houses large lots, single family, whatever, somebody proposes apartments and people are like, oh, that's a change. One of the things about nostalgia, (laughs) this was something Mm -hmm. I realized early on. I was like, I don't know how this movement is going to do because what we're really doing is fighting people's fear of death. Like when your neighborhood doesn't change for five years, 10 years, 15 Mm -hmm. years, it's easy to feel like, you know, you're not changing. But when you see a business you like close or a building that's familiar is torn down, you are faced with the fact that time is passing and that the things that you're familiar with have passed on, you know, they're going away. And like your life is also, you know, is, is time's passing. I don't want to say too much, but like that's getting closer. That's so interesting. I read some articles that you wrote. And one thing that you pointed out is that it's not that the city stays the same if we don't build more houses because young people move out, families move out. Those are all law-abiding taxpayers that are moving away from the city. (laughs) There's not just an emotional cost, there's a real economic money cost. Yeah, and it connects to what we were saying before too. I mean, you need young workers, you know, to keep your, just as a practical matter, to keep your economy going. And people also, I mean, like you experienced, right? Like, People want younger people in their community because they want to feel like their community keeps going. And then, but by like not allowing more housing to be built, they wind up frustrating that. And then, yeah, these communities just get older and older and older. Sonia, I want to get your perspective on an opinion, which I think is fairly common in Vancouver. Tell me if you've heard in the Bay Area, go something like this. So yes, Vancouver is getting more expensive and it is a global city. It is, we know lots of people want to live here. And so naturally, homes will get more expensive here. It's just kind of the way it is. You know, yeah, people who are older, maybe who came of age in the 70s and 80s could buy a home here and younger people can't. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a fact of life. Not just young people, but, you know, newcomers and all these people. So they get kind of get shuffled out to the suburbs, but it's just kind of like a natural way, right? Like you get shuffled out of the suburbs. We are building our transit system so you can get from the suburbs into Vancouver if you want to work. You know, so the beaches here are still accessible to people living in the suburbs. It's a little harder, but you know, of course, like life is just like that, right? And if folks want to come into the city to work, you know, people can always drive in, they can take the West Coast Express in, you know, they can take the SkyTrain in, and we're building homes in the suburbs. What would you say to that? Building homes in the suburbs is not neutral. It's not like just okay, you know, because when you have car dependent lifestyles, it's really bad for the environment. We don't want people to be driving. We want people to drive less. And not only is it bad for the environment, it's bad for humans. Remember when the pandemic hit and you stopped leaving your house and you got fat? For me, definitely. I used to walk to work. I didn't go to the gym, but just the like ordinary walking that daily life entailed, you can pretty easily get to walking a mile if you, you know, walk to work and walk to the store, very simple tasks. But then when you move to the suburbs, you have this car dependent lifestyle, everything is in the car. And like, 
it is bad for you. Like sitting is the new smoking, you know, you are taking years off your life. So I, I really think it's kind of people wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, yeah, well, you can do this lifestyle where, you know, it takes five years off your life. That's just the way things are like, no, like, why, don't make people live like that. That's not no one wants to agree to that. Um, and the other thing about the car dependent lifestyle, it's really bad for kids, frankly. Mm. You know, if you if you are totally dependent on adults and this happens to kids in the suburbs, if you're totally dependent on adults to leave your house, to go anywhere until you're like 18. You know, you really are not going to develop like the executive functioning and the independence, I think, mm -hmm. that people need, you know, to be successful in college and in, in adult lifestyle. I guess I'm kind of judging people's lifestyles, but there are real health and environmental impacts to just continuing <laughs> to sprawl. It, it is not neutral. But, you know, you're kind of asking a larger point, like the attitude that you're describing. Look, this is how politics is, Right. There are all different constituencies. Every single status quo has people who are happy with it. That's always true. You know, those people who are happy with the status quo are going to make arguments that defend the status quo. It shouldn't be surprising that somebody who's benefiting from the way things are is discounting the harm it's doing to other people, mm -hmm. you know? So it's right. not... We're not going to convince those people necessarily. That's why it's really important that if you are harmed by the status quo, you know, or you are in sympathy with people who are harmed by the status quo to like speak up so that when we have a public conversation, we're not only hearing from people who are like, things are fine. <laughs> I guess I resonate with that because, you know, when I grew up, like I told you, like my family moved to city of Vancouver and then about two years in my family moved to Burnaby. And I was spending, I was developing my executive functional, right? I was spending an hour on transit, a one way to get to school and back. And then we, my family moved out to Coquitlam. And then I was spending like an hour and a half, one way to get to school in time for 7.30 for track and field practice in high school. It was really hard. It's so tragic, you know, because if you, you can't see your kids, if you work eight hours a day and you commute two hours a day, by the time you get home, if you have young kids, they're asleep. It's like such a horrible feeling. You only see your kids on the weekend, like because some homeowner just didn't want their neighborhood to change. Like it's hideous. So, Sonia, I want to ask you that if Sonia Trous were made empress of the world tomorrow, you know, what would you do to solve Vancouver's housing crisis and the housing crisis in the Bay Area? Jeez, I mean, this is I have a little I don't know, I have a little more modest a policy proposal than if I was actually <laughs> empress. But a lot of people have the idea that the point of zoning is uh, that the reason zoning exists or the things that the thing that zoning does. Sonia, I realize we haven't like defined zoning for people, actually. A great point. Actually, yes, this is very important. So zoning is the is the law, your local law that determines what you can build where. To add on to what you're saying, zoning is the local law that says in this neighborhood, you can build single family homes or you can build apartment buildings or condos. Right, exactly. Okay. It's purely just about like aesthetics and like neighborhood character and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So I would basically make zoning be what many people think it is which is the practice of trying to separate healthy uses 
and unhealthy uses. You know, the practice of saying, this is where you can have something that's loud <laughs> and polluting, mm. although nowhere should be polluting, um, but this is where humans can live. And then once we decide that this is an area for humans to live and, you know, sh local whatever shops and stuff, the kind of stuff people need to, so commercials fine too. But once we decide somewhere is safe for humans to live, then humans should be able to live there in whatever arrangement they want, you know, instead of separating apartments from single family. I think you're sort of turning zoning on its head. Do the Japanese do this? I think I saw like a meme somewhere. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the rumor about Japan is true. I mean, they have zoning at the federal level, right? Instead of like the city level which is mm, excellent interesting because okay. it, it gives that like i was saying you know the higher level like you need a government that has like a broad view you know that's not just going to participate mm. in this like you build the housing or you build the housing so the federal government in in japan is really motivated to ensure that all japanese people have housing you know not just the people that happen to live in one town um, and they have a totally different attitude about homeownership. This is something we didn't even touch mm -hmm. on, but is also sort of important about public policy in the U.S. and probably in Canada. On the one hand, governments, local and national, uh, want to help people maintain their property values. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they want to ensure affordability and mm -hmm. you can't have both. There's the rub. There are homeowners who are going to see the values of their houses go down if houses in general become afford more affordable. Yeah, like by definition, right? Do you want to make it easy for someone who earns, you know, 30 or $60,000 a year to buy a house? Sure, yeah, everybody wants that, everybody wants that. Okay, well, in that case, houses are going to be cheap, you know? And when mm -hmm. you sell your house, the person that's going to buy it is someone who makes $60,000 a year. So mm -hmm. how much are they going to be able to pay you for it? You know, like that's so we kind of have to decide as a as a community, as a country, like, what do we really want here? Um, and in Japan, they have a completely different idea about buying a house. You know, here, when people buy a house, they it's it's forced savings. So they expect to at least not lose money on it. And really, they expect mm -hmm. its value to grow. Whereas in Japan, people treat their condos because mostly, you know, condos, apartments that they buy, like they treat their refrigerator or car um, or dishwasher, you know, you buy a dishwasher to use it. You don't think mm -hmm. after you own it for 10 years, the value is going to grow. Like you're not selling your dishwasher and expecting it to pay for your like kids, your retirement or your kids university. Education. Exactly. You buy it because you need it and you use it and it's a big expense, but it's worth it. Um, and that's that's how people feel about housing in Japan. And if we felt that way here, uh, we'd have a lot of public policy stuff would clear up. Sonia, I want to bring it home. It's like, what can an average person do? It's just an average Joe, you and me. Like, what can an average person do about all of this? I think it's really important, you know, wherever you live and where you work and where your family lives and where you go to party, you know? So first of all, mm. your first of all, your neighborhood, the idea of what your neighborhood is and, you know, where you're entitled to have an opinion if people can expand that and feel empowered to be like, no, you know, maybe I don't live in this neighborhood, but I have to come here every day for work. And so the land use decisions being made here affect me. And, you know, I'm going to make my voice heard, even if there's naysayers who are like, oh, you don't even live here. That doesn't matter. You know, you have an interest. Land use decisions affect you. You 
are, you have to speak up. Um, so, you know, expand the idea of where your neighborhood is um, to all the places you go. And then wherever you see an opportunity to comment on either a major land use decision, like zoning change or a particular proposed housing project, do whatever you can dash off an email. You know, mm -hmm. if you can go to a hearing, go to a hearing. If you can post about it on social media, post about it on social media, like just speak up, make your voice heard. And, you know, even if you're going to leave, right, because if you leave, maybe you are transient. There's going to be somebody that replaces you that's in the same position. Um, and then wherever you move to, same thing. Just got to get involved with your local uh, you're a local land use process. Maybe people don't want that advice. They think that sounds boring, but it's not that boring. It's actually pretty dramatic. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> and I guess, Sonia, this leads really nicely into the last question, which is, if you were me, like, would you tell me to stay in Metro Vancouver or would you be like, you know, this is too much stress? Right, let's, like, it's, maybe it's time to go. I have a couple questions. Um, do you, you said you live on a trailer what is the piece of land that you live on? My trailer is parked at a house. I don't own it. A development company owns it. And I rent the driveway spot from them. I have competing things. On the one hand, I think it's good for people to move away from the place that they grew up. I think that that's actually just a good thing to do. Although you kind of already did that because you until you were 11, you lived in Singapore. So that box is sort of checked. And then I also think it's good for people to live near their parents. I'm also biased by the fact that I'm familiar enough with Vancouver to know that it is a very beautiful place. It is a really, it is a really wonderful place to live. I mean, where are you going to go that's better than Vancouver? Oh my gosh, it's your kid. Hey kid. Yeah, Anton woke up. Okay, this is a good cue to wrap our conversation. I know you're not chasing me off the phone, but I think it's a good time. You know, honestly, actually... I don't know if the problem is really going to be better anywhere else. You might move somewhere and for five years or 10 years, life is better. But I, I think these housing problems are going to chase most of us everywhere we go. Okay. Well, on that, on that note, I think we're going to end, Sonia. Ah, yeah. He's really getting aggressive. Anton, just give me a second. We're almost done. Sonia, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to hear what you decide. And now, let's break down those ideas with architect Bruce Hayden. Okay, Bruce, that was Sonia. What do you think? I really enjoyed listening to Sonia. And one of the things that I like about her, she is passionate about this, this very specific issue. She's got a, an empathy and a real understanding of existing homeowners and their passions. So and this sounds like a critical thing that she said, but one of the things I wrote down was, was it should not be surprising that people benefiting from the status quo are blind to the harm it does for others. And that sounds like a, you know, why are they, you know, and she's actually genuinely saying it's not surprising. And it is true is, is that when we are interacting with the world, we often can only interact with the world through, through our own lens. And I also love the fact that she contextualized the whole idea that fear of change is kind of an existential thing. Like, yeah, right? You know, we're attaching, we've talked a lot, you and I, about this issue of that home is not just, you know, home is the heart. And so to some extent, when people are seeing the neighborhoods change, what they see is that they're losing their heart in some ways. So I liked that. Um, but I do really like the fact that she's pragmatic and says to do a couple of really good things. Mm -hmm. When I asked what should an average person do, she said, go vote. 
or go participate in the democratic process. She said, you should go talk to your local politician and talk, go to your public hearings. I recognize a lot of people don't want to do that. And like, I totally get it. And But she's saying like, this is the important thing to do. And she's also saying that the democratic process, the system we have built, does not work for building more homes that are affordable for people. Because she said, going back to your point, we have concentrated harms distributed benefits. So who's going to show up to our participatory democratic process? The people who are feeling those concentrated harms and the distributed benefits, those people are not going to show up. You know, almost if there's one thing that I would really love people to get out of this podcast, it would be get engaged in the political process, not just in a kind of complaining way. Local government is actually extremely accessible. You can, in almost any region in the municipality, you can call your local council, you can call the mayor in some circumstances. But then what happens is that what a lot of people do when they make that call is they just complain. They say, the whole system is screwed up. You got to fix the whole system. What she actually says, which is something I passionately and really powerfully support, is make a specific ask, Mm. right? You know, I want this. And it's also great if that specific ask isn't just about you, right? And one of the other things that happens is, you know, in the city of Vancouver, it can have very, very long public hearings that are, that are opposing a project. But often people will complain. What there's an absence of is kind of thoughtful, nuanced voices that recognize both sides of the equation mm-hmm. and want to actually help solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And in part because those voices are rare, mm-hmm. they will get listened to. We're often cynical about politics, but I have to say all the politicians I've met have actually genuinely been hardworking people who want to serve the community in good ways. And they don't want to be just told that they're complete failures all the time. Because you know? <laughs> you're all human. Yeah, we're all human. You know, an interesting like uh, psychological thing I took away from Sonia is she said people often believe everything that they feel and that is a bad Wasn't idea. Wasn't that a great like, quote? Jaw drop. That is great life advice in general. Right? It is. It's so true. I mean, people are so resistant to if new people new in, move into my neighborhood, that neighborhood is going to be ruined. The reality is, is that's just not true right? And what happens is that, in fact, our human fear of change occurs. But once change occurs, our ability to accommodate change is actually extraordinary. Look at the pandemic. Hmm. Suddenly, we all got to used to kind of sticking masks in our pocket every morning, which was something that we never used to be able to do. Social housing in neighborhoods doesn't actually lower property values. Hmm. They know that. They've done the homework. We have to respect people's emotions. Hmm. But we shouldn't build policy around people's emotions. Hmm. The only other thing that I heard from Sonia that I really liked and enjoyed was just a reminder that um, we have this odd relationship with cities. So often what happens is we go into a city environment, we say, this is a great place. I really want to have to be a place of experimentation and creativity and innovation. And I don't want it to change at all. Ah, interesting. People want contradicting things. It's like they want houses to be affordable, but they don't want house prices to go down. We can't have it all. We can't have it all. Alrighty, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to this featured episode of Should I Stay or Should I Go? In the next episodes, Jenny asks various people, such as journalists, developers, the director of SFU's city program, the minister of housing, and her mom. Should she stay or should she go? 
she is asking you too. To weigh in, listen to the complete Should I Stay or Should I Go series and follow Urbanarium City Talks in the links below.